Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Shanker. Whether we want to believe it or not, every relationship we have with a friend, a spouse, a child, or a coworker has a power dynamic as part of it. Power may shift and morph, but it's part of the relationship and often can be a force for good. In understanding power at this most intimate level, we can better understand how it plays out or should play out on a more macro level. For it's not something that comes from the barrel of a gun or from bullying, but from empathy and social engineering. As our guest UC Berkeley professor Dacher Keltner points out, power is not something that's won, but something that's earned and given. The problem or paradox is that once we have that power, we act differently, often counter to the way in which we earn that power. Dacher Keltner is a professor of psychology at the University of California, Berkeley, and the faculty director of the UC Berkeley Greater Good Science Center. It is my pleasure to welcome him back to this program to talk about his new book, The Power Paradox, How We Gain and Lose Influence. Dacher, thanks so much for joining us. Jeff, it's great to be with you again. It's great to have you here. How do we define, for the purposes of this conversation, how do we define what power is? Well, you know, that's one of the most important things that I set out to try to do in the power paradox, which is to just have us all, as you uh, nicely sort of analyzed in the intro, how do we think about power? How do we redefine it? And I define power, and a lot of people do, as just the in, and a person's capacity to influence other people in any relationship. And when we think about it on a intimate level, on a micro level, yeah. how is that different or how does that relate to thinking about it even in a more global sense? Well, you know, I think when you ask most people what's power, they immediately think of, you know, great generals or people who are in politics mm -hmm. or on Wall Street. But in actuality, power is part of every life. And so I think that the principles that apply to how we can have good power and have the respect of our kids, you know, in the intimate life of a family, really have very similar properties as the principles that make for great presidents and leaders. So mm -hmm. we really have to go from the micro, our family life, our personal life, to the macro, what we are like as a, a nation or a community. Clausewitz defined diplomacy as the continuation of war by other means. When we think about these intimate ways in which we use power, is it really always about the shifting power dynamic? Is every relationship about that? It is. You know, I mean, Bertrand Russell, the great philosopher in 1938, um, you know, with fascism on the rise in Europe, he said, you know, we, the only way that we can understand social relationships, parents and children, romantic partners, work colleagues, and then community members is through power. It's really how we're always influencing each other minute by minute in our daily lives. And so what I was really struck, Jeff, by is as the science mounted, what we started to discover is how we handle our power on a daily basis says a lot about how happy we are. It says a lot about how healthy our nervous systems are. It says a lot about kind of the sources of social problems in our society. So we, we really always have to be thinking about the moment by moment conduct of our power. Has the conception of power in this sense changed over time? This idea of, of empathy and giving, as you talk about it, as part of the power dynamic, as part of gaining power, is that a, a universal construct that has been always true, or does it have more roots in kind of modernity? Man, what a terrific question. So, you know, I was, um, I've been teaching 
these ideas uh, both to parent communities who are trying to raise kids and to leaders of the world, right, at Google and Facebook and other places. And, and what we have observed and what I would hear in these conversations is power is really changing. And we, we now know from studies from five different continents that 40 years ago, power was more top-down. It was a little bit more coercive, if you will. Mm -hmm. And today, our work life has changed. How we parent has changed. What romantic life is like has changed. And power, our capacity to influence, is much more collaborative. It's much more, it goes both ways. It's, you know, kids are more empowered today, for example. So power has moved from kind of a top-down thing to kind of side-by-side and collaborative. So it has become more, uh, it's more a a question of modernity, like you say. But one of the things that's happened, seemingly happened as a result of that, is that it has created a great deal of anxiety in people because they (laughs) they really don't understand necessarily how to operate in this new paradigm. And what it's created is kind of a backlash, and we've seen it in other countries, and unfortunately I think we're seeing it here, is this kind of nostalgia for authoritarianism, for that top-down approach you were talking about before. Well, that's one of the most insightful comments I've heard, Jeff. You know, so we are, you know, power is changing in historic ways, right? There are more women in positions of power than at any time in history. You know, the the work today is much more multicultural. Um, the nature of of work and influence is much more collaborative today than it was 30 years ago. And yet, what that means is there will be some people who might have lost a little power, lost some place in the world, or who yearn for the more authoritarian times. And I think that says a lot about uh, American politics today, regrettably. Is power in that sense, it's, it's interesting as you talk about it that way, one wonders whether it's a zero-sum game. If somebody gains, somebody else has to lose. Yeah, you know, I think we, you know, one of the things that I tried to do in the power paradox is kind of challenge certain myths we have about power. One is, you know, is this old myth of Machiavellianism, that we gain power by taking other people down, by coercion, by strategic violence, by manipulation. And that has a zero-sum assumption, right, which is that if I, my power necessarily requires other people to not be powerful. But what we're learning from studies of really healthy families, from studies of great communities, from studies of organizations, is that great power is just the opposite. It's where your power empowers other people and really makes them do good work. So I don't think... Uh, it, it, it's zero-sum, and in fact, I think studies show that great power, great influence in the world really is where you empower many. When we look at people like Mandela or Gandhi, I mean, that's where we really see some classic examples of that. Exactly, and, and you know, one of the things that I do in The Power Paradox is I just challenge the reader to take on that zero-sum assumption, and, and you just start to see that really great historical change really is about sort of this, this distribution of power, empowering others. One of my favorite examples, Jeff, is this amazing story of Thomas Clarkson, who's a young guy in England in the 18th century, and he started hearing about the conditions on slave ships, of people in these, you know, the bottom of the slave ships and dying. And he wrote an essay for a, in a contest, and he won. And that essay and then the information that he gathered about the slave trade literally was the undoing of slavery that really had enslaved three-quarters of the world's population. So power 
is found in everyday acts that really bring out the, the better in other people. The other part of this that, that's so interesting to look at in, in this broader context is the degree to which the desire for power inherently produces in those that try to obtain it a certain, almost a certain degree of guilt. We see it, you know, politicians are the classic example, but there are others, <laughs> that, that when they yeah. want power, the first thing they say is, well, I'm not really seeking that office. I'm not really interested. I'm on, you know, I'm just listening. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's yeah. so insincere and so transparent, but it, it portends to this kind of guilt that goes with the desire for power. <laughs> really astute observation, you know. You know, human life is paradoxical, right? And we know, for example, you know, I do a lot of research on happiness right. uh, at the Greater Good Science Center, and we know the more you strive for happiness and grasp it, or try to grasp it, the, you're more likely to fail, right? Uh, and I think the same is true with power, which is that, you know, great acts of power tend to come to you through your good work and through empathy and sharing resources and advancing the interests of many people. But studies show when you really want power and you really are doing manipulative things to try to get it, paradoxically, you're less likely to have influence in your world. And the other paradox, which you write about extensively in The Power Paradox, <laughs> is what happens when we have it. Yeah. Well, this, you know, your listeners, I'm sure, would, in, would anticipate these findings just by listening to the news or reading the newspaper. But, you know, what we have found, Jeff, in hundreds of studies now, is if you randomly give power to somebody in an experiment, right, or we study people who come from lives of privilege and wealth, they are much more likely to abuse their power. And our studies show just a little bit of power makes me more likely to lie to other people, more likely to cheat in a game to win a little bit of money, more likely to take candy from kids, more likely to drive in a really kind of problematic, dangerous way. So uh, this is why we really need to be careful about what we do with our powers. We're very vulnerable to abusing it. And isn't that what the construct, I mean, if we look at the roots of all of this, isn't that what the yeah. construct of manners and behavior was set up to monitor, to set up to be a kind of governor on? Absolutely. You know, really well put. And, you know, I, I think in some sense that's one of the underappreciated but really important lessons about power is that, you know, if we can set up societies and communities where we have ideas about manners and we have ideas about dignity and, and respect uh, and also our own reputation, right, through these social processes, we will, keep, we will really keep the abuses of power in check. And then it's really when those things fade away that you see things like Enron and you see really problematic presidential administrations and the like is when we kind of lose our sense of our accountability to other people and uh, that's when problems ensue. And it happens on the personal and the intimate level too. I mean it's something that we have to be and again that's what manners supposedly do and we certainly see a breakdown of enough of that is that it keeps those human tendencies and they are kind of inherent human tendencies in check. Yeah, you know, you know it's so interesting, you know, I was doing a lot of work on power and thinking about politics and organizations, but when you go to the family life and you go to romantic partnerships uh -huh. One of the things that we started to find is that it's really people who practice these deep principles, these ethics and manners like you're talking about, like 
you know, just simply saying thank you or expressing gratitude or, you know, patting somebody on the back as a form of encouragement. Jeff, we're finding those simple forms of dignity make for better, better romantic partnerships. It's really the key to raising kids who will be good ethical citizens in the world. So this, this idea of these deep intuitive ethics or manners is fundamental to good power. Is the flip side of that that because yeah. of the, the, the shifting power dynamics, again, thinking about it in terms of interpersonal relationships, that these relationships, because of the shifting power dynamic, are a kind of protracted conflict in a way? Yeah, you know, the, um, we, you know the, if you take a close look, right, at like a marriage, um, and you take, or you take even more provocatively a close look at sort of what are the dynamics between parents and teens, mm-hmm. um, those are really power dynamics. And the conflicts that teens have with their parents, for example, are really about, you know, forms of agency and power. Does the teen get to drive the car when they want to drive the car or go out with the people that they want to go out with? And, you know, what we're learning is these same principles that make for great presidents like Abraham Lincoln of empathy and respect and dignity, they work really well in the family life as well. So, you know, one of the the great insights from studies of parent-child dynamics is parents who get their kids through really careful listening and respectful questions to really reason about their lives, right? In moments of conflict, when you're really, the heat is up in the family, those kids, they, they learn how to become better, better community members, right? So conflict requires our, our best power skills. We see this both on the good and the bad side as we look yeah. historically at successful yeah. and unsuccessful monarchies in a way, where the power yeah. is inherent, where in successful monarchies it's curbed by, by behavior, by manners, by tradition, by these things that you're talking about. You know, I mean, it's so striking that, you know, so the central thesis of the power paradox is you will make a great difference in the world at any scale, whether it's with your family or your community, if you really focus on the interests of other people, right, and you honor that. And, you know, when you look at the, the great accounts of other kinds of social institutions, you see the same conclusion. So, you know, you see analyses, for example, of the Catholic Church, and we have some popes who really lift up the world and other popes who really are abusive. And it's the same idea. It's those popes who stay focused on the needs of others do well. You know, you see it in uh, political organizations like monarchies that, you know, the, and, and U.S. presidents, that it's really those who kind of are really fundamentally oriented towards advancing to the interests of others who have the great legacies uh, in political power. So I think it's, it's a very important and uh, pervasive idea. What do we come to understand through science and through understanding evolutionary biology about yeah. the, the part of this that is instinctive to act in ways that are counterproductive when one acquires power? <laughs> well, you know, this is, this is the regrettable thing, you know. And, and so, you know, we uh, have, and a lot of people have studied, you know, from a biological perspective, like, when I get a little blast of power, right, let's say I, I become the top person at work or I have success in the community, uh, what happens to my brain? And, and regrettably, what we're learning is a couple of things, which is that, 
your you know your interest in satisfying your desires and pursuing rewards is really amplified. So you're just looking at the world for like, how am I going to gratify my desire? And then regrettably, there are these amazing studies that show when I feel powerful, the empathy networks in my brain, which are big clusters of neurons in the in the frontal lobes, are disengaged. So I'm no longer able to listen to people or know what they're thinking. And that's the problematic combination of where I'm really pursuing my desires and I'm not thinking about other people that leads to the abuses of power and is a very important lesson from this new evolution and biological approach to power. You know, Jeff, if I could just continue the other sure. side, and this, this, you know, this was as important to me um, in writing The Power Paradox as any, which is we also have to think about, well, what is it like to be at the bottom? You know, mm-hmm. if I'm in a group and I'm the low-status individual, or if I'm in society and, and I'm in a condition of poverty, or if I'm, you know, the, the sibling in a family that's always picked on. Uh, and regrettably, we're finding just as important a lesson, which is that state of just being below people hyperactivates our stress system of cortisol and this thing called the inflammation response. And people are starting to estimate now that if I always feel disempowered, and I write about this in The Power Paradox, mm-hmm. it really harms my nervous system in almost permanent ways. So we've got to be thinking about that too. Does it make a difference in terms of how people act once they have power, how that power was acquired? Well, we, we do know that, um, you know, and this is really worrisome for contemporary politics mm-hmm. if you think about it, which is that if you are born into a life of privilege. Um, Our studies show, and we've done dozens of these studies, you know, if you hail from a a life of privilege, um, you are more vulnerable to the abuses of power, very unequivocally. You are more likely to not care about other people's needs and not react to other people's suffering and to act unethically. Um, There are studies in now dozens of countries showing if I come into life having gained power just by my birth, uh, you're more vulnerable to being abusing power. So that's one lesson. Um, the other the lesson, that, and, and this is a question we haven't looked at scientifically, is what if I really earn my power the hard way? You know, I come up through the ranks and do the hard work of gaining power. Uh, and my, my hunch is that enables us to use our power more effectively. It, it's so interesting to hear you say that because in many ways it, it runs counter to, to the way it was at other times because there yeah. was a sense among those that were born to privilege, a sense of noblesse oblige, that there was a broader responsibility. And the way we yep. have transformed it today is those that have acquired power by pulling themselves up by their bootstraps are the ones that feel that they have a, a privilege to be able to abuse power. It's, it's, it's the reverse in many ways of the way it used to play out. Well, I do, and I think that, you know, a lot of people have been talking about this, you know, that we have lost the sense of noblesse oblige. Like you said, Jeff, we've lost the sense of, you know, like Andrew Carnegie, right, mm-hmm. was, earned a lot of wealth. A lot of people found him to be a problematic power holder, but he gave his wealth away. And he had this deep sense that, uh, that even though he got power through complicated ways, that it was his obligation and, and really commitment to the greater good to build libraries and universities and schools by giving his, what he has, had won away. 
And, you know, I, I think what we now look at today is we study people who have privilege and, and wealth, and they're less likely to give stuff away. And I think that's problematic and comes out of this kind of 30-year emphasis on greed is good and, you know, what I wrote about in Born to be Good, which is we've seen this rise in kind of the moralization of self-interest. So we mm-hmm. got to shift, right? The peop- One of the reasons I wrote The Power Paradox is to say, wow, when you have resources, you have such an opportunity and a privilege to make the world better. I mean, you have so much power or the, the capacity, and I hope people will make better use of it. The other part of that equation, and this is, is perhaps more complex for, for this conversation, but you know, economic power as opposed yeah. to other kinds of power, and there is arguably a difference in those things. Very much so, and, and so you know, one of the things that we're learning in this science of power that led to the power paradox is we really have to think about power in a multifaceted way. So power, of course, is how much wealth you have. And that's probably 10 to 15% of any individual's power. Power is your political integration. Do you have influence in politics? Those are well known. But just as important today are things like your ability to spread good ideas, right? Uh, through Twitter, through talking to people. Power is also your ability to influence the emotions of people. And so when we study people at work, one of the things that you're, that's increasingly true today is at work, we have a lot of power if we're really emotionally intelligent, if we know how to listen and empathize and kind of create sort of adaptive ways to handle stress. So power comes not only from money, but also from great ideas, from cultural innovations, from emotion. So it has many different sources. It's also interesting to look at it from a generational perspective, because a lot of what we've been talking about and a lot of the way things have changed really do have a generational component. Absolutely. You know, and I think that, um, and not only that, but also gender, right? Mm -hmm. So we, and also culture. So the, today, if you are thinking about power at work, um, there are now more women in the, that workplace than, than ever before. There are people of different cultural backgrounds. Uh, and uh, there's a new generation, the millennials, that is, is really changing things. And, you know, a lot of the studies suggest that this newer context and also the newer generation has moved away from the old, you know, mad men model of power of mm-hmm. 40, 50 years ago to a more collaborative approach that you see in a lot of our work lives today. So it really has shifted generationally, which is exciting. Right, and, and a lot of that is a function of, of just everything today being more collaborative. The classroom is more collaborative, and certainly the workplace is as well. Yeah, and you know, there are these, I mean, this was really important to the power paradox, which is there are these new studies that show, you know, if, if you want to do, uh, get a patent or do something that's an innovation at work, um, you have to get a lot of different kinds of people to do the work, right? Work is just more complicated. If you want to do a project in a classroom, you are doing integrating the work of a lot of different kids and talents and, and forms of knowledge. So we are in a much more collaborative world than we were 40 or 50 years ago. And that just means this social stuff I write about in The Power Paradox of empathy and gratitude and knowing how to build strong relationships is all the more important to your power. That may be the most encouraging part of the conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Let's hope. (laughs) 
Dacker Keltner. His book is The Power Paradox, How We Gain and Lose Influence. Dacker, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Jeff, it's great to be with you again. Thanks. Thank you.